before the fellowship is the greatest story you have never heard i'm dan wait a minute say that again oh yeah before the fellowship what happened when you don't do it with the script before the fellowship what do we say we say what we say was because it's a it's a double meaning it's was like, the greatest story you've never heard. Yeah. Thank you. Like sorry. Before the fellowship existed was an even greater ah, yes. story that you've never heard. I'm, I'm Greg. And I'm Dan. <laughs> and Cameron's not here today. Um, so we have a bonus episode for you. Uh, we are going to be reading from this book here. If you see it on the screen, it says uh, J.R. Tolkien, author of the century. It is by Tom Shippey. We are not getting paid to promote this book. His phenomenal book. Um, there is a chapter on the Silmarillion, and um, it's it's entitled "The Silmarillion: The Work of His Heart," obviously referring to Tolkien. Within that chapter, there is a section that ties in with our readings um, concerning Turin um, and other people too, called the Human Stories of the elves the human stories of the elves and if you're interested that's in page 247 we're going to do a little reading from there and then um we will uh, discuss it all right i'll read the human stories of the elves and this is midway through the chapter, so he had just finished explaining a way of understanding the structure of the Silmarillion, and it's now continuing. Another way of penetrating the structure of the third section of the Silmarillion is to observe that it is largely organized round the falls of three different hidden kingdoms. Doriath, Nargothrond, Gondolin. Each is set up by an elf king, respectively, Eluthingol, Finrod Felagund, Turgon. The latter two, motivated by a lack of faith in the power of the sons of Feanor to ward off Morgoth, Thingol made his decision before the return of the Noldor to Middle-earth. Each kingdom prospers for a while, even a long while, till each is located by, and willingly or unwillingly, acts as a host to a mortal, a man, respectively, Beren, Turin, and Tuor. These stories of human involvement with the elves were above all the, work, the works of Tolkien's heart. Christopher Tolkien has noted in his father's statement that the tale of Tuor and the fall of Gondolin was the first of the Silmarillion complex to be written, while on sick leave from the army in late 1916 or 1917. The Book of Lost Tales, 1, page 10. It leads furthermore to the story of Erendel, Tuor's son, a name which we know had caught Tolkien's attention even earlier, while he was still a student at Oxford, and which had generated what is possibly the very first work in his whole mythological cycle, the poem of The Voyage of Erendel, written in September 1914. The Book of Tales, chapter, uh, 2, pages 267 to 9. 
Meanwhile, the story of Beren and Luthien remained deeply personal to Tolkien till he died. He had the names Beren and Luthien carved on his and his wife's shared tombstone. A striking identification. These tales do indeed give a clue to the original motive and deepest theme of the Silmarillion, and perhaps of all Tolkien's work. In his essay on fairy stories, first published in 1947, Tolkien remarked that the oldest and deepest desire satisfied by fairy stories is to tell tales of the great escape, the escape from death. He added with clear reference, with clear self-reference, which must in 1947 have seemed merely jocose, the human stories of the elves are doubtless full of escape from deathlessness. The only, the only such stories, of course, are those written by Tolkien, and not surprisingly, they do contain both themes. Beren escapes from death. He dies, but is brought back from the dead, alone among men, by the songs of Luthien, which move even Mandos, keeper of the halls of the dead, to pity. Luthien correspondingly escapes from deathlessness, for she, like Arwen, in Appendix A of The Lord of the Rings, is allowed to choose death and finally accompany her husband. Erendil and his wife Elwing, in their way, also escape from mortality and reach the undying lands to beg for aid to Middle-earth. But again, conversely, and on a much larger scale, one should note that nearly all Tolkien's elvish characters choose death in the long term, though to them death is different from what it is to humans, simply by returning to Middle-earth. Their return does not make them immediately mortal, but it does expose them to the malice of Morgoth and the chances of Middle-earth, which are almost invariably fatal. Why do they do it? Why did Tolkien ever imagine such a strange motivation? There is no difficulty in seeing why Tolkien, from 1916 on, was preoccupied with the theme of death and escape from it. By the end of World War I, as he said himself, his closest friends were dead. He had been an orphan since his mother died when he was twelve, and had never really known his father, who died when he was four. The theme of escape from death might then naturally seem attractive. More puzzling is the theme of escape to death, the deep love of the elves for the mortal world, which on the one hand they regard as Galadred Memin, Enorath, en, yeah, Enorath, tree-tangled Middle-earth, that is, and which they regard on the other as a paradise, loss of which is not fully compensated by immortality. See Haldir's remark quoted above. One might argue that Tolkien, elaborating his stories of a race choosing the fate of mortality, was trying to persuade himself that mortality had, after all, some attractions, invisible, though those might be to humans who have no other choice. Against that, the whole of the Silmarillion, and especially the human stories embedded in it, is deeply sad. Sad beyond the Lord of the Rings, though that is not pain-free, as imperceptive critics have said. 
Certainly sad beyond anything normally tolerated in 20th century fiction. The question they ask insistently is, why? Why do death and pain and evil come? Why are they necessary? Tolkien's answers to these perhaps unanswerable questions, long evolving and never in fact completed though they are, can be seen in their most developed form in the tale of Turin. This survives, like so much of the Silmarillion, in several major and minor forms, which I would pick out as follows. Firstly, the tale of Turumba and Foloke in the Book of Lost Tales 2, written mid-1919. Secondly, the Lay of the Children of Hurin, incomplete, written in alliterative verse in two main versions in the Lays of Beleriand, written between 1922 and 1925. Number three, of Turin Turumba, chapter 21 of the 1977 Silmarillion, constructed from several sources, but perhaps predominantly work prior to 1937. And finally, the fourth, the Narn i Hin Hurin, or the tale of the children of Hurin, in unfinished tales. Much the most expanded version as far as it goes, but fragmentary. Written from 1951, see the War of the Jewels. All four versions differ from each other, but the outline remains surprisingly stable. Very briefly, the start of the story is the self-sacrificing stand of Turin's father, Hurin, at the Battle of Ninarneth Arnoed, which allows Turgon to escape to Gondolin and puts Turgon under deep obligation. Hurin is taken alive by Morgoth and is allowed to see the fate that unfolds for his children. Turin's mother, Morwen, sends him away for safety, and he is received by Eluthingol in Doriath. But Turin, angered by taunts at his mother, kills one of the king's counsellor, Seiros, flees and becomes an outlaw. Assisted by the march warden of Doriath, Beleg, who has remained his friend, he rises to prominence again, but is captured by the orcs, and on being rescued by Beleg, kills him by mistake. He makes his way to Nargothrond, where Finrod is now dead, and under a false name once more becomes prominent. He persuades the elves of Nargothrond to emerge from hiding and take a more aggressive role, while the new king's daughter, Findulias, falls in love with him. Um, I'll stop there just for a second, just to say I think we're going to be in spoiler ter territory, so if you are wanting to experience the story without spoilers you shouldn't listen on and skip the rest of this episode meanwhile Morwen with her daughter Nienor have eventually fled and found refuge in Doriath too late to catch up with Turin Turin's new aggressive policy however only betrays Nargothrond to Morgoth and it is destroyed by Glaurung the dragon Glaurung's binding spell holds Turin immobile while Findulias is driven away, and the dragon taunts him with ab abandoning his mother and sister. Turin tries to rescue his mother, but arrives at their home to find she is gone, and while he is doing that, Findulias is killed by the orcs. Meanwhile, Morwen, now looking in her turn for her son, meets the dragon and is lost in the confusion 
while Nien or Turin's sister loses her mind and runs naked through the forest till she collapses on the grave mound of Findulias. Turin finds her there, and since neither he nor she knows who she is, marries her under the name of Ninniel. In the last exploit, he wounds Glaurung mortally, but falls unconscious himself. And when Ninniel comes to rescue him, Glaurung restores her memory to her, and she realizes she is pregnant by her brother. She commits suicide. Turin kills the man who tells him that that happened, Brande, but when it is confirmed, decides on suicide in his turn. In a last scene, he asks his sword, the work of Aeol, the Dark Elf, whether it will kill him, and it replies, in a scene which changes little from 1919 to 1951, and which is certainly imitated from the Finnish Kalevala, Yea, I will drink thy blood gladly, that so I may forget the blood of Beleg, my master, and blood of Brandir slain unjustly. I will slay thee swiftly. The Silmarillion, chapter 21. He kills himself, and the sword breaks as he does it. All this is seen, furthermore, by Hurin, given the gift of vision by Morgoth, and his embitterment once released plays a part in the latter destructions of both Doriath and Gondolin. But what is the root of the tragedy? One answer is that obviously Turin brings his troubles on himself. Again and again he lashes out and kills the wrong person, Seiros, Beleg, Brande, and others. Another could be that it is just terrible bad luck. If you believe that luck is ever just luck, Morwen and Turin crisscross while looking for each other, and Nienor just happens to be found on the grave of Findulias, where Turin's guilt and protective urges are at their strongest. Or, of course, it could be the fault of Morgoth and his servant, the dragon Glaurung, who spares Turin at Nagothrond only for a worse fate. But all three of these could be seen relatively comfortable explanations. As with the Aeol Arethel Meglin complex discussed above, Tolkien remained keenly interested in the hidden roots of evil or of disaster, in the way that minor outbreaks of selfishness or carelessness mean more than they can seem. Snowballs leading to avalanches once more. These concepts are most developed in the latest version, the Narni Hinhurin, incomplete though it is. The initial scene is found in all versions. In the Book of Lost Tales 2, Melko, i.e. Morgoth, curses Urin, i.e. Hurin, putting a doom of woe and a death of sorrow on his family, and granting him a measure of vision so that he can see what happens to them. The scene is there in the Lay of the Children of Hurin, the Lays of Beleriand, where the phrase is a doom of dread, of death and horror. In the 1977, Silmarillion is become a doom of darkness and sorrow. And here, Melkor, Morgoth, calls himself master of the fates of Arda. In the much expanded Narn version of this scene, Morgoth says further, I am Elder King, first and mightiest of all Valar who was before the Lord, before the world, rather, and made it, 
The shadow of my purpose lies upon ardor, and all that is in it bends slowly and surely to my will. But upon all whom you love, my thought shall weigh as a cloud of doom, and it shall bring them down into darkness and despair. From the Unfinished Tales, page 67. Urin denies this, or some of it. Before Ada you were, but others also, and you did not make it. And even if he was the mightiest of the Valar, Hurin adds he could not pursue even the mortals beyond the circles of the world. Morgoth replies that there is nothing beyond the circles of the world. Hurin's last words are, You lie! And Morgoth replies, You shall see and you shall confess that I do not lie. The question is, how far is Morgoth lying? And the fear is that some of what he is saying is true. Perhaps Morgoth really is, and Hurin makes elusive reference to whatever it was that caused the fall of man long ago, when Morgoth may have taken the role of Satan. The Princeps Huis Mundi, that is in Latin, uh, Prince of this world. Tolkien was, after all, in his own life, intimately acquainted with the problem of pain, as Lewis called it. However, if the world is delivered over to diabolic power... That power, it seems, must work through human wills, as the Narn elusively suggests. Some responsibility, to begin with, is laid in Narn on Turin's mother, Morwen. She is given very clear advice by her husband before he leaves. Do not be afraid, and do not wait. She remembers this, but ignores it, because she would not let yet her humble pride to be an alms guest even of Thingol she sends her son away instead but it is a son who remembers the unfortunate words of his father's crippled servant Sador that the incomers who have taken over the country have learned from the orcs to hunt their slaves with hounds the fear that this may happen to his mother is clearly Turin's major trauma the image of a naked woman running at Thingol's court, it is again the unfortunate allusion to this. Do the women of Hithlam run like deer, clad only in their hair? Which triggers Turin's first outbreak, first manslaughter, and second exile. The taunt which Glaurung le levels at him in the Silmarillion is that he has abandoned his mother and sister. Thou art arrayed as a prince, but they go in rags. And it is his reaction to that which makes him abandon Findulias to the fate which he fears for other women. But the fate he fears is exactly what comes about, with Morwen lost in the woods and Nienor hunted by orcs till she runs naked, as a beast that is hunted to heart-bursting. It is a pity for this, and the identification of all the abused women of his imagination in the one figure which makes Turin love Nienor, attempt to protect her by marrying her, and set up the fatal and final incest. All this comes from Morwen's bad decision to separate her from her son, and one of the roots is pride. It comes also from a series, as I have called them before, Unfortunate phrases and allusions, none of them, except perhaps Glaurung's, intentional. 
But what is meant by fortunate? Is it the same as fate? Turin asks Sedor, What is fate? As a child, and gets no answer. But the implication of the story is that Morgoth was not lying, though he may not have been telling the whole truth when he called himself master of the fates of Arda. He cannot make people do wrong, for that would deny human free will, but he can put words into their mouths and the responses to those words. In the end, all Turin's fatefully bad decisions are then their responsibility. Characters in Icelandic sagas occasionally say of loose and provocative speech, Trolls must have plucked at your tongues. And Tolkien repeats the idea in more dignified form, with Mablung saying, for instance, to Segros after his taunting, Some shadow of the north, I of Morgoth, has reached out to this tongue and to touch us tonight. Morgoth's doom, then, is works by shadows and suggestion. But the Lord of the Rings, somehow, shadow, absent, can paradoxically become a presence. In the Narn, the double explanations seen in the Lord of the Rings are strongly marked and open, openly discussed. Sador is lamed by ill luck or the mishandling of his axe, which Morgoth could have sent the ill luck, so that Sador would be there with his unfortunate words. Turin reaches Doriath by fate and courage, but the fate may be Morgoth's, for it would be better if he had died young. Sador tells Turin, like Galadriel talking to Sam Ganji, a man that flees from his fear may find that he has only taken a shortcut to meet it. Turin takes the nickname Turumba, Master of Doom, in defiance of this whole train of thought, asserting his own free will. But the epitaph given him by Nienor is Turin Turumba Turon Ambaratan, Master of Doom by Doom Mastered. The whole story suggests once more a deep consideration of the nature of Macbeth, where similarly the words of witches seem to bring about Macbeth's fall, but could not operate without Macbeth's response to them. We'll stop there. There's another page, but I, I think they, they're moving on for Turin's story, and we're right in the chapter of Turin on mm. uh, our readings right now. Right. Um, but that, I think that was just that's an incredible insight into the breadth and depth of... Tolkien's work hmm. like it's not just it's not just chapter 21 in the Silmarillion but there's like four total sources that stretch across uh, 40 or more years of different writings and iterations of the story of mm -hmm. Turin mm -hmm. Greg what were some things that um, struck you um, <clears throat> okay I guess Maybe the first topic maybe we could dive into is just this preoccupation with death. You know, that's something that was yeah. discussed earlier in the in that chapter. And <clears throat> what's the author's name again? I'm sorry. Um, it is Tom Shippy. Shippy. So yeah. so something that Shippy says, or I think maybe I'm misquoting this because I don't have the text in yeah. front of me, but 
um, there's a certain sense that the elves, like we've kind of noted in our reading of this, that the elves have this fascination with death. Yeah. They don't understand it fully or they don't understand why men die. Like all, all of them die. Yeah. Whereas only some elves die. And usually it's in the midst of conflict, right? <laughs> like, and yeah, they, I think what he suggests is in a certain sense, the Noldor choose death for themselves. They choose a, a fate of death of mortality by returning to middle earth. And, and, and it's, I mean, that makes sense in a certain level because they, they go following Feanor knowing that, I mean, they've kind of made this pact, you know, they have the oath and they know that at least the sons of Feanor know they'll either take back the Sumworlds or die. There's no, there's, there aren't any other options besides that. And so for me, that's curious. Um, yeah, it's not even clear if, if they did gra- take the Silmarils, would, what would they do with them? I don't know if that's been made clear to us yet in the story. Like, would they then um, go to the Undying Lands? Well, or I would... guess we'll find out eventually. Will we? What hap- whether they take them or not. But, I mean, there's one in in uh, Baron's possession, right? And nothing's really happened. Yeah. That... that you know, it's not in the possession of the sons of Fanor, but anyway, I, I guess, okay, so this is maybe more the point, not so much the text itself, but Tolkien's experience of death, right? He lost his parents at young ages and yeah. lost friends in the Great War, and um, I don't know, I mean, I don't want to sit here and try to psychoanalyze the guy, you know, <laughs> I don't know him. But there is something interesting about that, especially in this story of Turin Turambar. And I, I have something I've noted before is that the there is this sense of good and evil that runs through very, pretty clearly in these stories. I think that's why I like them. And I think I've mentioned before that I, I was very critical of the book um, Mistborn by Brandon Sanderson. Because it's just like this evil for no, with no good confronting it necessarily. It's just like this very, uh, you know, dystopian world. And hmm. even the heroes aren't really very good people necessarily. And so it's not, it's not, there's not the clarity of that. But this story is kind of like that turn Turambar where there's this doom on people and it's just filled with darkness and accidental killings and incest and all this stuff, you know, and yeah. It's. I mean, it's much darker than we've read some dark stuff so far, but this is the darkest of anything we've read, right? Oh yeah, it's, it is really dark, and I, I, I mean, in the war, I mean, these young men uh, in the Great War, they they saw horrible things. I mean, like they saw their friends die. It wasn't just that. Oh, did you hear Bob died? It was no, you're in the trenches or whatever with Bob, and. He gets blown to pieces or a bullet hits him he gets shredded or he dies of some accidental thing like trench foot which is just seems so yeah um merciless of you know a good god you know this is you know he t- uh shippy talks about tolkien being really well acquainted with the problem of pain and right. lewis had his way of um dealing with that you know, with the wife, uh, with the, with, with the death mm. of joy. Mm-hmm. Um, 
end with his death of his mother, Lewis's mother. But you can see this sort of mirrored in, in Tolkien's works, but it, it doesn't come out in the same way. Like Tolkien just turned to writing and storytelling and just kind of writes out the, <laughs> the de these horrible, horrible stories. Right. You know, like this Silmarillion is great, but it is so dark. Yeah. I think um, what, what, Shippy. Oh, go I was ahead. just going to say, uh, Shippy's. Shippy says that like the the amount of death is intolerable to twentieth century fiction readers. Um, sorry, what were you going to say? Well, I was going to say, um, I'm sure you've seen a performance or read Macbeth, right? Yeah. And have you seen or read or heard uh, Kalevala? That's the other one he mentions, the Finnish epic. I've not. Have you? I saw there's a well, there's a famous um, there's a famous piece from like work from um, Sibelius called Kulervo, which is like about that part of Ooh, the story. Nice. And uh, but it, yeah, it's very. I mean, there's a lot of similar elements. Um, you know, this troubled <clears throat> man, and he does have this you know, incestuous relationship and ends up taking his own life. And um, so, so it's like, it's not like, and obviously there have been other stories with these elements. It's not like this is um, totally, it's, it's Tolkien's take on these, this kind of story, but it's not yeah. something that he just created from scratch. Yeah. He's obviously influenced by these other works, but it's I don't I just find even that I find interesting that this is a like a, a kind of a type that we return to in fiction. Yeah, and I, and I do how, wonder how like conscious what that... it was. I wonder how conscious it was. Like, is hmm. it is it a type that remains like sort of a meme in 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 the human psyche that yeah yeah as we're working through trauma like these themes kind of come out out. Uh, whether or not we've kind of dealt with with them like uh, or or did did tolkien know like did he say oh, i'm gonna write a british kalevala i'm gonna mm -hmm. write you know british uh, british macbeth i mean of course <laughs> 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 i'm gonna write a modern day macbeth uh -huh. <laughs> um yeah i i i think i i tend to think that it it's more subtle for him hmm. it's more it's more a trope it's more a meme that kind of comes back and back. Hmm. um so what do you okay what do you make of okay well, well let me lay out a couple more thoughts and i'm just curious what you think of this too because to me um the lord of the rings is full of death there's death on, every, on, you know, most pages. Yeah. Many pages. Maybe not most pages, but many pages. And, um, but I wouldn't, I, w I don't think it's a very dark story necessarily. Uh, there's darkness in it, but there's light that meets it. And there's the conflict of good and evil and, and good triumphs ultimately. And there's something, there's a lot of beauty in it, even in the midst of the tragedy of it. Now, the Cermelian has much less. Um, there's, there's much less triumph for good. <laughs> you know, there's, yeah. there's a lot of, um, 
I mean, I know Shippy just mentioned too that kind of this third part of the Silmarillion is the fall of Doriath and the fall of Menegroth and the fall of Gondolin. Yeah. And there's not a happy ending for these countries. <laughs> they, they, they're gone. Um, so I'm curious, you know, what does that, what does that say about Tolkien as an author that he's, because to me reading the Lord of the Rings, I don't think he's someone who's just totally immersed in darkness and, Okay, sorry. One more thought, and then yeah. I will. I, I will. I will stop talking. I just want to hear what you say. But one one thing this reminds me of. Um, have you ever read any of the poetry of Sarah Teasdale? She's an um, American poet. Maybe, from yeah, actually, yeah, early twentieth century. Yeah, but only through. Yes. So only recently. So she, some of her poems are like the most beautiful things I've ever read in my whole life. And she just had this deep um, desire for beauty. But in her personal life, she didn't, ha that wasn't fulfilled. She, um, I believe she was in like a very unhappy marriage. It was possibly, if I recall, maybe abusive. And she ended up taking her own life and at a relatively young age, maybe in her 40s or so. Um, and and but it's interesting because she's so I, to me what I see in that is she had she wrote about what she really deeply longed for and just seemed to be denied her whole life. Um, I don't see that as much in Tolkien, but maybe I just don't know enough about his biography. Like he has darkness in these stories, but he also has these great triumphs and beauty and glory. Yeah, I mean, you know? we see you, obviously in this chapter, you, you heard that. And then our discord channel, I posted the photo of it today of the tombstone of him and his wife, which it's mm. a singular tombstone, which means they share the, the grave, which in of itself is, is a beautiful thing. And then the inscription on the, on the tombstone, is that you know under each of their names is Baron and Luthien, mm -hmm. and so yeah, I mean, yes, he experienced a great amount of pain and loss and suffering in his life and hard work, and yet the catastrophe of his life was probably, and now I'm putting words in his mouth, but I'm sure he wouldn't deny this the eucatastrophe was the meeting of his wife hmm. probably there was a moment of loneliness and loss and then one day he saw his wife which i forget her name now um which i so i mean the the, the concept sorry eucatastrophe i said that without even explaining what it means this is a this is a phrase that we've spoken about briefly before maybe uh it's a phrase that tolkien coined um, and it essentially is, it has the meaning of like when, when things are at their bleakest, there's, there's a triumph that comes from an unexpected place. Mm -hmm. So obviously the greatest catastrophe in Tolkien's mind in history is, uh, the resurrection. Um, because mm -hmm. you have this great defeat of the God man on the cross, which was actually his triumph into the resurrection. And so I think that Tolkien, his life full of darkness and bloody murder and all kinds of horrible things was um, 
in in a way he he saw that in his faith so i mean anybody can read the old testament and this is one of the biggest um criticisms from people that don't believe it's like oh look the old testament like we're we supposed to we're supposed to learn from uh, you know lema in 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 genesis like how he's treating all his wives and and bringing people under slavery is that is that the moral we're supposed to get right. from the story? Right. You know, it's this sort of like bit of cry, but really the human heart in in its entirety is exposed throughout the writings of the Bible. You get to see every aspect of the human heart from the bleakest, most depraved, darkest depths of the heart to the highest, most pure, most innocent most self-giving um and and so i think tolkien just knew that deeply and mm. and 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 seeing from scripture seeing from his life seeing from his faith it just kind of pours out into this beautiful book and though he himself he knows that death is not the the, the last thing is it's the great story of humanity is actually mm. the conquering of death mm. Interesting. I do think, I think that's a good point that um, there seems to be kind of this fascination with, I guess there's like this utopian dream that, you know, people share that where they want to, they pursue relentlessly this like perfection in our world where harm and suffering and violence is just totally done away with. And, um, and I think some of the, you know, some of the um, kind of rhetoric that you hear in this is this disgust with anything dark or evil or pain or just pain or suffering and this um, abhorrence for those who inflict any kind of suffering. And but but there's, there's kind of like this um, unwitting like hypocrisy in that, like because all of us are capable of evil things, you know? And so to, I mean, yes, we, not that we need to be celebrating evil deeds or anything, but, but we can't, none of us can deny that we're capable of great evil ourselves. And I heard this stated very, in a very um, charming way from Jerry Seinfeld, who uh, I might've mentioned this on the He's podcast. He's one of the great American philosophers, right? Yes. Yes. Uh, many quotes attributed to him that, well, sometimes people say they're Mark Twain, but they actually came from Jerry Seinfeld. But, <laughs> um, he said, uh, he was, you know, in one of his stand-up routines or something, he said, you know, the darkest thing that I've ever, I've, I ever see people do is uh, throw their garbage on the floor in the movie theater after the movie's <laughs> finished. And and there's like, you know, obviously that's that's the consequences of that are fairly small, but, but you, if you kind of unpack it, there's some truth in that statement that, you know, yeah. it's this, Somebody has to clean that up and right. maybe their job or, 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 you know, they're getting paid to do it, but it's like, you could have just made shopping it easier carts, for them. Shopping carts in Walmart parking lot. Right? <laughs> it's like, why the frick do you like, it's right next to the, there's a, there's a cart corral. You, you made it, every, you made it 10 feet away, but you yeah, can, yeah. you know, and, you, and, you, I mean, it, you could probably lose a few pounds too, you know, and that could be a great way to, you know, move around. Get your steps in. So I'm not saying that these are the most evil acts that people can do. Maybe you are. Maybe you disagree with me on that point. But, <laughs> but, but what I admit, what I am saying is, the seeds 
inside us that result in those kinds of actions are the same seeds that, you know, it, it's just a few steps down the line from really serious and great evils. And so um, I think it's, I think part of what's good about what Tolkien does here is it forces each of us to confront this kind of stuff. Yeah. Whereas we're, we're maybe we're inclined to like not want to think about this at all and just yeah. kind of, you know, banish it from our minds, but it's good to kind of dive into this even unwillingly. So just to confront it and, and think about like, am I, you know, even in these small actions, um, am I moving towards this or away from this? Am I moving towards good or evil? And that's something um, Lewis talks a lot about, which is every action you take is leading towards this eternal consequence, you know, for good or for evil. Uh, there's nothing, there's nothing that we do that doesn't really push us one way or the other. And what's that, what's that, um, that maxim that I, you quote sometimes like the, so, uh, um, so an action reap a habit. Yeah. So, so a habit so, reap well, a, no, so, so a thought reap an oh. action. So an action reap a habit. So a habit reap a character. So a character reap a destiny. Mm -hmm. And this is exactly what we see in Turin, who yeah. it's these small steps along the way that, and, and he's such a tragic figure because he was a victim in many ways from the beginning, losing his father in this great battle and being separated from his mother and sister and losing his sister too. But um, the, the actions that he takes keep leading him further and further down this path of darkness. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And Tolkien just, he's seen that in his life. He knows it. So he knows it from experience. He knows it from knowledge and is in the creative process. It's just this sort of intuition. Just, it's just coming out in it. And what a beautiful way to process the trauma in your life to, to, to do it in a way that creates something that ultimately brings people joy also shows them um, something about themselves maybe or something about human nature uh, he, he truly is a master hmm. all right I think we're actually we're, so we don't have Cameron here today who has our StreamYard premium <laughs> account um, so we are running out of time we have I think a couple of minutes left so we're gonna close here um, if you like what Greg heard today, um, <laughs> rate us three Silmarils out of three and follow us everywhere at Before the Fellowship and consider joining our Discord, which, how do they do that, Greg? Uh, you can get a link in the description of this episode. And um, I think it's, I think you can search for it too if you, I'm not sure how to use Discord all that well, but I believe um, if you search for channels, you can find Before the Fellowship. Great. If you search the server name Before the Fellowship, you can find us. Join there. Join us next week uh, for the greatest story you, you've never heard. Did I say it right that time? I think so, yeah. Okay. <laughs> the Summerillion by J.R.R. Tolkien. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Uh-huh. <laughs> Should be ending. <laughs> Is it not? <laughs> it's still.